So uh, I once heard a comedian who was ostensibly not a Christian, and he was making fun of Christians, actually, or, you know, making a joke about Christians, that Christians often will wear crosses around their neck. He was saying, it's strange, right? I mean, the, the, the hero of your faith was crucified, killed in this way, and you honor his memory by wearing a cross. You know, he says, it'd be like wearing a sniper rifle or something around, around your neck for someone that you was killed in that way. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit irreverent, and okay, I don't love all that, but he brings up an interesting question. Um, why is the cross something that we, in some ways, celebrate and in some ways um, is central to our faith? Uh, theologian J.I. Packer says that when we say Jesus was crucified, it's like saying he was hanged or he went to the electric chair. And yet, we're going through a series of sermons on the Apostles' Creed, summary of Christian beliefs, and we come to the part of the creed this week where we say boldly that Christ was crucified. In fact, the part that we're looking at this week says this, I believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Now, uh, that's a lot to throw in one sermon, um, but that all is kind of, falls under a summary category that theologians call the humiliation of Christ. It's Christ going from his heavenly glory to an earthly, humanly body, to suffering, to death, to burial, and ultimately, in a mysterious way, to hell, uh, which we'll talk about a bit later. It's followed by his exaltation, his rising from the dead and ascending into heaven. But today, we're gonna focus on the humiliation. That's where this passage focuses. And in this passage, we're gonna see that he became human in order to die, in order to help us. So first, he became human. In verse 14, we read that the children share in flesh and blood. And children, in the book of Hebrews at this point, is just being used to describe humanity, saying humans share in flesh and blood. One thing we all have in common, we all have flesh and blood. But the tense of the verbs here is important. And I know that probably doesn't sound exciting to most of you non-English buffs, but bear with me. It says that the, the children share in flesh and blood, present tense. So in general, it's the case that we as humans always have flesh and blood. But Christ, it says, he partook, past tense, of flesh and blood. There was a time when he existed without flesh and blood, and then he took it on. He partook of it. There was never a time where you said, I'll take a body. Yeah, give me one of those. You've always had a body. For you to exist is to have a body. But Jesus, last week we looked at the part of the Apostles' Creed where we say say that he is God's only son, And we said what that means is he's eternally begotten of the Father. He has always existed. There was never a time when he was not. And yet he was not always human. There was a time when he partook of flesh and blood, when he became a genuine human being. The creed kind of describes this process in further detail. It says he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, That's drawn from other passages of the Bible than the one we're looking at today, so we're not gonna focus there, but let me just say this if that's a hang-up for you. Uh, The first part of the creed says we believe in God, the Father Almighty, meaning we believe in a God who has the power to do whatever he wills. Now, if you believe in that God, it should be no problem to believe that he could bring life from a virgin. He has the power to do whatever he wills. He created life in the first place. And so that's the way Christ becomes human. What happens is, in the words of Augustine, early Christian leader from Africa, Christ becomes what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. He becomes what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. He becomes human, which he was not, without ceasing to be God, which he was. 
So when Christ partakes of flesh and blood, we have one person, the divine Son of God, who now has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And these natures subsist in the one person, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. Those are the words of the Council of Chalcedon, AD 451, a church council that took place in modern-day Turkey. He's not a human, so what it's saying is, he's not a human body with a divine soul. He's not some, you know, two separate things that then are kind of mashed together in some way. He's fully human, so he's got a human body and a human soul. He's not some mixture of the two that creates a third thing that you kind of just mash them together and create something else. The two natures subsist inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and separately, which means when Jesus Christ becomes a human, he is just as human as you and I are without ceasing to be just as divine as God the Father is. That said, when he comes to earth, his divinity, his divine attributes are veiled. He doesn't act on them. He doesn't use them because... Uh, that's why we call it his state of humiliation. Uh, He's not taking advantage of the power that was rightfully his. That humiliation, it comes from the word humble. And consider the humility of Christ in becoming a human being. We've been talking about um, a few attributes of God over the last few weeks, Um, not because they're the most important attributes of God, but they're the ones that have appeared in the passages we're looking at. We said that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, able to do whatever he wills. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's ase. He's, eter- he's independent uh, of anything else for his being, and he's eternal without beginning or end. And Christ, being the Son of God, being begotten of his very nature and one in being with the Father, is all those things. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is ase. He is eternal. So what this means is he had the power to do whatever he willed, yet he willingly became a human being which by its very nature does not have the power to do whatever he wills. He he becomes a human and he can't even walk when he first comes into existence. He has to learn how to sit up, how to turn over, how to crawl before he can take his first step. He was omniscient as God, yet he takes on a human nature which by its very nature does not know all things has to learn in order to accumulate knowledge. So we read in scripture that Jesus grows in wisdom and in stature before God and men. He learns in the synagogues. He takes on, uh, you know, as God, he's say he's independent. But when he becomes a human, now he's dependent. He needs his parents to feed him. He needs shelter to keep him safe. He's subject to all the same vulnerabilities, all the things that can go wrong to the human body that we are subject to. And as God, he's eternal without beginning or end. But as a human, he's born on a certain day. His human life begins, and his human life is destined to perish in death, just as ours is. Now, who willingly partakes of those things when they don't have to? Who willingly takes on those things when they don't have to? I hope you all know who Joel Embiid is. He's a, the seven-foot center for the Philadelphia 76ers, or the basketball team here in Philly. I know you're not all sports fans, so I, just, I, I need to fill some of you in. Um, but... This would be like him taking on a five foot four inch body with no basketball skill, no basketball IQ, and moving to a war-torn village in the middle of the nowhere to try out for their JV basketball team. Would anyone expect him to do that? To leave the power, the prestige, the skill, the security of his current position 
to assume an estate that is the opposite of all of those things? Would you do that if you were him? Yet what we read here is that that's exactly the kind of thing Jesus has done to an even greater degree, to an even greater extent than he ever could. See, most of us are working to gain power. Most of us are working to acquire knowledge, to become more independent on other people so that they can't hurt us, to extend our lives. What this is saying, though, is that Jesus had all those things to infinity, right? Ultimate power, ultimate knowledge, ultimate independence, ultimate eternity, and he empties himself of their use in becoming a human being. Now, if you believe in that Jesus, if that's Jesus Christ, your Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and became man, might you not use your power to serve those who don't have it, rather than using it to further interests that really have only to do with you? Might you use your knowledge in service of others, rather than to exalt yourself and make others feel more stupid than you or to look good in their presence? Might you so love people to assume a kind of healthy interdependence that human relationships were designed to have rather than isolating yourself so nobody can hurt you? Might you so love people, actually, to suffer on their behalf, to subject yourself even to the possibility of bodily death or the daily death of your selfish desires in order to love others? What Christ has done, Christ has actually though he was omnipotent, taken on impotence. Though he was weakness, though he was omniscient, he has taken on ignorance, a lack of knowledge. Though he was independent, he has taken on dependence to others. Though he was eternal, he has taken on a body that was destined to die. In fact, he came not only knowing that he would die, but specifically in order to die. So verse 14 continues, and it tells us the reason Christ partook of flesh and blood was so that he might, through death, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. See, the dilemma that God is in is that because he's God, because of his nature, one of the things he cannot do is die. He is an eternal being, incapable of death. And so, in order to die on our behalf, Christ takes on another nature. He becomes what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. But death was his goal in coming. So listen, this is important. His goal was not simply to show us what God was like, though he did that. His goal was not simply to teach us the right way to live, though he did that also. See, one of the ways that sometimes people de-emphasize doctrine, the Bible's teaching on Christ, is they'll say, um, you know, let's not talk about doctrine. That's, that kind of divides people. The most important thing is that we just really live the way Jesus taught us to live, that we turn the other cheek, that we love the poor, that we don't judge one another. Again, we're not gonna talk about the parts about sex and about money and about hell, but let's, do, let's live the way Jesus taught us to live. But the question you have to ask is, if that was what Jesus came to do, God could have done that from heaven. Jesus, God doesn't have to become human to teach us how to live. In fact, Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount is that God already has actually taught you how to live. The whole Old Testament, right, the part of the Bible that's 
before Jesus comes, God doesn't have to become human to give us his law, to tell us the right way to live. The command to love your neighbor as yourself is from the book of Leviticus, it's the third book of the Bible. Jesus didn't make that up, right? So why does he become human? If he doesn't have to become human to teach us, if it's not just to show us what God is like, why does he become human? To give us a perfect example of how to live that way. Wrong. Wrong. Jesus, he does that, okay? But that's not why he came, ultimately. In his, he doesn't give you an example of how to destroy the one who has the power of death so that then you can go do it. You can't destroy the one who has the power of death. He comes to do the thing that you can't do. Not to give you the example so you could go do it, but to do it himself. To do the destroying on your behalf of the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So what is, who is this devil that we're talking about here? Well, the devil is uh, an evil spiritual being, the head of all evil spiritual beings. Of course, if you don't believe in a spirit realm, that's going to sound kind of like ghost stories or whatever, but if you don't believe in a spirit realm, you don't believe in God, you don't believe in a lot of the things that I'm saying. But if you do believe that there is a spirit realm, you acknowledge the reality of that, and you've been on earth for more than five minutes and seen the evil that people are capable of, it should come as no surprise that in the spirit realm there is evil, that there is an evil spiritual being. The Bible testifies to his existence from beginning to end of this, this being known as the devil. He's not God. He's not an, an alter ego to God or God's, you know, equal in, in any way. Uh, he's a creation of God. He's powerful, but he's not all-powerful. Like God, he's potent. He's not omnipotent. But the power he has is a significant power. This passage tells us he has the power of death. Verse 15 uh, gives us a little more clarity on what that is. It says, through the fear of death, he subjects us to a lifelong slavery. The devil was there at the beginning when the first humans were created and he tempted them to sin so that through their sin, death would enter into the world as the just penalty of their sin. So now what he does is he uses the fear of death to subject us to a slavery in service of him rather than in service of God. Because here's a fact you gotta face. If you really think about death instinctively, it's a scary thought. If you really let yourself go there, it's why most people don't let themselves go there, because it is a scary thought. You, you can sing all you want about a circle of life, right? Lion King, that's kind of how we deal with it, right? Oh, it's all natural, it's all just part of the circle of life, but um, when you're actually thinking about facing death, you're probably not saying, ah, you know, this sounds great. It's all just a part of the circle of life. Isn't this just so natural and lovely? I can't wait to simply return to the dust. My friends, when they die, cool, you know, it's, it's all part of the... No, we resist it, right? We say something's not right about this. It shouldn't be this way. I uh, often listen to music when I'm working, and I have to listen to instrumental music. You know, I can't do the lyrics, and my mind follows the lyrics, not the work. So it always bothers me when I'm listening to instrumental music, and they drop lyrics in. Well, on the Interstellar soundtrack, there's a uh, song, I think it's the last song, where they quote um, a poem by a guy named Dylan Thomas. And in that poem, he's talking about death. And the counsel he gives is to not go gentle into that good night. He says to rage, rage against the dying of the light. Now that is a better expression of how humans instinctively respond to death. We rage against it. We're afraid of it, right? We don't want to go there. Why? Why are we so afraid of it? Well, there's the unknown of it all. Nobody, none of us have walked that path before, so it's scary because in some measure we don't naturally know what is coming. 
A secular person today, uh, many secular people today, believe that death is a total cessation of personal existence, a total loss of consciousness. And, you know, it's worth noting that that's not any less of a leap of faith than believing that there isn't an ongoing consciousness because we can't actually empirically examine either. If consciousness ceases to exist, we can't study it. If consciousness continues to exist, but in a mode that's not communicating with our current mode of existence, we couldn't study that either. So we just don't know. But if you really believe that it is a loss of consciousness, stop and think about that for a few minutes. That's one of the scariest imaginable thoughts, right? That you would just cease to exist, that you would, um, everything you love, everything you know, uh, gone, lights out. Scary thought. But there's a perhaps scarier thought that is at the root of our fear of death. It's the thought that we do continue to exist, but that there will be a judgment, that there will be a reckoning for the things that we have done in this life. And if you're facing death and you're being honest about it, it's a common thing, in people in hospitals, people who are more aware of their mortality than probably a lot of us in the room are, um, they, they look back on their life often and they wonder, did I live the way I was supposed to live? Did I do the things I was supposed to do? And when you're in that situation and you really have to soberly face the reality of death, it's usually the case that just telling yourself, well, I always tried to do my best, probably not good enough. Because you know it could have been different. You know it could have been better. You know there were times when you lived for yourself. And so there's this fear of judgment that, that comes along with death and we fear it. Jean-Jacques Rousseau says, he who pretends to faith, face death without fear is a liar. Irving Yalom, a professor emeritus of psychiatry, psychiatry at Stanford, says the fear of death permeates all of life and lies behind many of our lesser fears, our other fears. He, he's, he's got a bone to pick with counselors because he says, you should be talking to the people you counsel about the fear of death, but you're, you're afraid to do it, actually. <laughs> but it's behind a lot of their fears, and you're not helping them by not talking about it. Well, the devil loves to use it. The devil uses it to maintain your allegiance to him and to his kingdom, to, to get you stuck on yourself and not thinking of the love of God and the love of other people. He uses it to make you what John Piper calls timid and dull, boring and big-headed, and consumed with our own self-preservation. He gets you consumed with you and with preserving yourself, with living for nothing bigger than just getting another day and preserving your safety and your comfort because you're so afraid of dying. He'll use it to get you to kind of put all your hopes into your kids because they'll at least carry on your name to put all your hopes in your money because maybe you can get enough possessions that will outlive you, to put all your hopes in your fame because then your name will live on beyond you. He'll use it to keep you avoiding hard things, hard conversations, conflict, uh, being public in your faith for Christ when it might cost you because we're so afraid of opposition. We're so afraid of danger. And behind all those lesser fears is this ultimate fear of the ultimate danger, the fear of death. So we, we give all of our energy to self. We go away from love for others because a genuine love for others requires a kind of exposure of yourself to the pain that they might cause you. A love for God requires an entrusting your whole life into his hands. But if you're fear, afraid of death, you won't do it. You have to preserve yourself. You have to hold on to yourself and grasp it as tightly as you can. So the devil uses it. He wields it over you. You, you, you almost you feel like you can't give your life in service to God. You can't give your life in love for others. You have to hold on to it. That's slavery. It's a slavery the devil holds us under through the fear of death. Try as you may, though, 
devil's a liar, it doesn't work, you're gonna have to face it. You can fear it all you want, you can preserve yourself all you want, you might be able to squeeze out an extra 2.7 years or whatever, you're gonna have to face it. But there was one being who never had to face it, who was eternal God and who chose to face it for you, who chose to take it on. Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, became human and really died. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. But Pontius Pilate's just the governor of Rome who was, oversaw his execution. But we say that in the creed to affirm that this really happened in history. This was a real death of a real human. And he came and he did it. He stared death right in the face. He knew it was coming for him and he came specifically to enter into it for you. He dove right into it. Not because he's just a glutton for pain, masochistic or something like that, but out of love in order to help those who through the fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery, in order to help us, in other words. So verse 16 tells us that it's not the angels that he helps, but the children of Abraham, human beings, especially those who follow in the faith of Abraham. Therefore, continuing in verse 17, he had to be made like them in every way. But the question we really should still be asking, the question you should still be asking, it's okay if you're not, I'm gonna ask it for you, the question we should still be asking is, why did he have to die, though? Yes, I get it. Death is bad. I don't want to die. Okay. Satan uses it to enslave us. He does, okay? And God so loves us that he wants to deliver us from that slavery. He does. But why can't he do it without having to die himself? Why does he have to come and die? Why is the cross at the center of our faith? Verse 17 gives us the answer. It says he, he had to be made like us in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. His death is a propitiation for the sins of the people as our high priest. Now let me break that down. A high priest in the Bible represents the people before God. So to be a representative of the people, you have to be one of the people. We have this in our government even. If you want to be a Pennsylvania representative in, in Congress, you have to establish residency in Pennsylvania. You have to either be from here or you have to move here. Well, Jesus moves in to a human body in order that he might be a genuine representative of ours before our Heavenly Father. Gregory of Nazianzus, fourth century pastor in Constantinople said, what is not assumed is not redeemed. If Christ did not become man, Christ could not have redeemed man as our high priest. And we needed that. We needed it because the high priest offers a propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is an old word, but it's a good word, so we're gonna keep it. We're gonna bring it back, make it popular again, okay? Propitiation. Um, it's cognate means propitious. It's to be favorable. It's to have, be pleased with someone. Not only to love them, but to be pleased with them. So what it's saying, when Christ makes propitiation, what he's doing is he's offering a sacrifice that procures the pleasure, the favor, that makes God propitious towards those on whose behalf the sacrifice is offered. The word behind it, the Greek word, is a translation of an Old Testament term that was the mercy seat of the temple. It was the place where the priest would go and take an animal sacrifice and sprinkle its blood on behalf of the sins of the people and where God would dispense his mercy to the people. So what this is telling us is that Jesus Christ has come as our faithful high priest 
to make that kind of sacrifice that would wash away the sins of the people and that would procure a propitious disposition, a favor, a pleasure of God towards those on whose behalf the sacrifice is offered. Apart from it, if that's not offered, if there is no propitiation, then death comes as a curse on our sins. It's a judgment from God. That feeling that people often have at the end of their lives that we talked about earlier, that maybe I haven't really done everything I was supposed to. What if there is a judgment? There's a reason for that feeling. There's a reality behind it. The fact is, we do have real sins. There were sins of the people that needed to be propitiated. And if you go to death representing yourself without a high priest who has made propitiation for your sins, then you will be condemned for those, those sins. That death will be a judgment on your sins. You and I have sinned, and somewhere in there, buried under layers of denial, under distractions of entertainment, under rationalizations that we've told ourselves, self-made immortality projects, we know that those who do such things deserve to die. We know it. Look at how quick we are to point the finger at people in our society that are doing evil, that are perpetrating evil. And we don't just say, well, you know, that's kind of my opinion and that's, what, that's their way of living. No, we say they shouldn't be doing that. And we say they ought to pay for that in some way. They shouldn't be allowed to keep doing that. We gotta stop it. Because we know there should be a penalty Justice is real. It's not a, just a construct. It, it exists, and some things are wrong, and some things deserve judgment. But part of the reason that we always want to point the finger out there is to avoid the reality that there's also a finger pointing at us, that there's a divine f- finger of judgment, that all the, but I tried to do my best, can't escape, can't get you out from under, that we can't just repress. And so if we're left to represent ourselves before God, we will experience that judgment in death, and that's why, actually, we're afraid of dying. Anselm of Canterbury, a 10th century pastor, I know I'm throwing a lot of quotes at you. Part of the reason I'm doing that is because I want you to see that these things that we confess in the Apostles' Creed are things that we're united with Christians throughout the ages confessing. We've quoted today a 4th century bishop from Africa, a 4th century bishop from Turkey. Now we've got a 10th century one, and we've got pastors from today, from England and America, and Here's Anselm, uh, this is what he says. The the payment that must be made for our sins could not have been done unless man paid what was owing to God for sin. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it, so that the same person must be both man and God. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person, so that he who in his own nature ought to pay and could not should be in a person who actually could. If you didn't catch all that, it's okay. What he's saying is, with the partaking of flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, you do not have to represent yourself before the judgment seat of God. We have a high priest who represents us, who actually can represent us because he was made like us in every way, yet without sin, who made propitiation for our sins, not with the blood of bulls and goats, not with the blood of animals like the priests of the Old Covenant did, but with his very own blood, who offered his very own life on our behalf to bear the judgment of God, to bear the wrath of God in our place.
That's what it means that he made propitiation for our sins. It means he offered himself to God, bearing our sins and taking all the wrath of God against our sins so that the only thing left for us is the unmitigated favor and pleasure of God who loves us in Jesus Christ, his son. His soul experienced the unspeakable anguish of the wrath of the Father, even as his body experienced the unspeakable anguish of the cross, which is why we confess in the creed that he descended into hell. Hell is to be cast out from the favorable presence of God, and that is exactly what Jesus experiences on the cross. Though he suffered under Pontius Pilate, it was to God that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is forsaken. He is His death is a judgment from God, not upon his sins, he had none, but upon the sins of the children of Abraham, as this passage calls us. The sins of his people that he carried all the way to the cross and suffered the wrath of God for. He descended into the hell, the the, the torments of the wrath of God in our place. This is the ultimate humiliation. From the glories of heaven, everlasting communion with his Father, one with God from all of eternity past, to a human body, to suffering under Pontius Pilate, to death, to burial, to the pains of hell itself. He went through hell so that you wouldn't have to, so that I wouldn't have to. He propitiated God so that we wouldn't have to. Now, not even death, though we will all still likely face it, will come to us as judgment from God. If Jesus is your high priest, Death will not be a sentence of condemnation on you. It will be an entrance into an even greater experience of a a conscious, everlasting experience of the love of God that will never be taken from you. So is he your high priest? It's up to you. Will you represent yourself as you head toward the death that we will all face? Or will you go with a high priest who has made propitiation for your sins already? The lawyers say that the one who, re- has himself as a, who represents himself has a fool for a client. It's no different here. If you go representing yourself, all the I always tried my best, all the a good God would just accept me the way I am, will not propitiate your sins before the Father. You will face his judgment. And your sins will bring condemnation, a just sentence of condemnation upon you. But if this is your high priest, you have a high priest who made propitiation already, who bore the wrath of God in your place, and there is now none left for you. There is only the love of God, which not even death can separate you from any longer. If he's just your teacher, you're still under the condemnation of your sins. You haven't lived up to his teaching. If he's just your example, you're still under the condemnation of your sins. You haven't lived up to his example. You can't do what only he could do, but you can trust what he did for you. You can entrust yourself to him and rest upon him and his sacrifice in your place. Believe in Jesus Christ. Say and believe in your heart what the creed says. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, my Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. If you believe that, and he is your high priest, God will be merciful to you and 
will be propitious, favorable towards you forever. What kind of love is that? <laughs> that God would do this? You know, p- people will sometimes say, people often say, I don't believe in a God of wrath. My God is a God of love. But do you see, it's, it's precisely because God is wrathful that his love is so amazing. I mean, first of all, I don't know how you can call God a God of love if you don't believe he is wrath. I mean, a God who would look at this, the evil of our world and the injustice in our world and just say, they're there, you know, I, I love what, you know. And that's a God of indifference. That is not a God of love. Frederick Douglass, uh, in his narrative, His Life of a Slave, recounts the sins of his slave masters. And this is what he says repeatedly. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? Saying God is too good. God is too loving to not have wrath in the face of injustice. But, but furthermore, if, if your view of God is that he's kind of just this positive energy, this positive life force with no wrath, no real personality, no real justice, then the message of his love, it just doesn't do much. Okay, it's sentimentality. It can't change you. It can't change your life. But if, if he is a God who is a God of justice, a God of wrath, who while he was wrathful against you, so loved you, that he gave his only son to bear that wrath in your place so that you could receive his unmitigated favor and love, that's a love that has the power to change you. If Jesus Christ, one in being with the Father, was also wrathful towards your sin and yet came not to pour out his wrath but to take the wrath, if he became a human being in order to die, in order to help you to make propitiation for your sins, and that's how he's loved you, that's a love that will blow you up, honestly. It'll change you. It'll ruin you. It'll, it'll dispossess you of your insecurities. It'll embolden you in the face of your fears. And it'll give you an indestructible hope, a hope that not even death can take from you. Do you know that love? It's a love so amazing that it will also give you a hatred for your sin. It... Christians um, and non-Christians will often try to fight bad habits in their life or sin in their lives by just telling themselves they're not supposed to do it, by reminding themselves of the dangers. They'll say, you know, if I do this, there's going to be bad consequences. If I don't do it, there'll be good consequences. And that's all true, by the way. It's good in its proper place. That can kind of wake you up, help you realize that you're going down a bad path. It's not enough to change your heart. But this, this love if you can look at Jesus dying on the cross and see him dying, bearing the wrath of God for the very sin you're about to commit, that you feel tempted to commit, that has the power to do something in you, to change your whole attitude towards that sin. I mean, how ugly, because it doesn't just show you the danger of sin, it shows you how grievous sin is. It shows you the ugliness of sin, how much God hates it, how wicked it is in his sight, how much it, what pain it caused your Savior, who loved you enough to experience the pain on your behalf. How ugly must sin be if the only way for God to forgive us of our sins was for his only son to die for them in our place? Will we really go back and roll around in the dirt and the mud that was so disgusting that only the death of the Son of God could cleanse us from it? 
let a greater awareness of God's love, let a greater sense of how much he loves you, create in you a hatred for the sins that sent him to the cross. And even in that struggle against sin, he is with you to help you. That's where our passage ends. That's where we'll end today. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Whatever temptation you're going through, whatever you're struggling with, not only does he represent you as your priest, he's a merciful priest. Seven, verse 17 tells us he's a faithful high priest who has been tempted in every way as you are, yet without sin. In fact, he's been tempted in more ways than you have been. Don't ever say, he doesn't know what I'm going through. That's not true. Jesus has been through worse temptation than you've been through. Because we give in to temptation, and then it's over. That We let the battle end there. He never gave in to temptation. He was tempted to disobedience, to walk away from God's will for his life, for the entirety of his life, and he obeyed all the way to the point of death. You've never done that. Jesus went through that kind of temptation, and now he doesn't beat you over the head with that. He sympathizes with you in the midst of it. He helps you when you're weak. He has compassion on you in the midst of your struggle, even though you've failed, because he knows that every one of those sins, every one of those failures, he took to the cross in your place and propitiated the wrath of God so that all that would be left for you is favor and love and mercy. Go to him with your struggles. Run to him with your struggles. He is able to help those who are being tempted. And look ahead to death with hope, with indestructible hope, knowing that you will not face the wrath of God in it. Jesus has absorbed it all so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, um, <clears throat> your love is beyond compare and is beyond comprehension. That you would so love us, God, when we didn't love you. That you would so love us that even though your justice requires a payment for sin, you would offer the payment rather than charging it to our account. That you would give your only son for us. And Lord Jesus, that you, filled with the same justice, would come and bear its penalty in our place so that we could receive the unmitigated favor and pleasure of our Heavenly Father. What love. Would you humble us with that, that we might be humble in our lives? Would you create in us a hatred for sin, the sins that sent you to the cross? Would you embolden us and fill us with a greater confidence in your love for us if you did not spare your own son what will you not do in love for your people? And God, may we turn to you in the midst of our struggles, knowing that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every way yet without sin. Compel us, Lord. Move in us that we might move towards you in our struggle against sin, that we might experience the sympathy and the compassion of Jesus Christ, the friend for sinners, the lover of our souls, who loved not his life unto death, who made a propitiation on our behalf so that we might have the eternal assurance of your love that could never be taken from us. May we know that today. Testify with our spirits that we are your children. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.